we turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. I always, uh, some of you will remember the name, others of you are too new to Little Farms to remember it. But I often remember that uh, I was actually introduced to that hymn. We had it in the hymnal, but we hardly ever sang it. Uh, but uh, uh, Harry Vandermeer, who attended our Thursday morning Bible study, uh, called it to my attention once and said, did you, did you know this hymn? And uh, I don't think we had ever sung it at Little Farms before. And he said, oh, this is so beautiful. And he remembered as a child in church uh, singing it often. And uh, whenever I come to that hymn and we sing it, I think of uh, uh, Harry's uh, reminder and pointing that out and introducing uh, not only myself, but all of us here at Little Farms. It's probably one I never would have picked out otherwise, but certainly presenting a beautiful biblical truth, a truth that we find, uh, at least in part, in Hebrews chapter 8, and then certainly as we get into Hebrews chapter 9 in the weeks that are to come. But tonight our message is from Hebrews chapter 8, the supremacy of Christ because he is the mediator of a better covenant. That's the message that we have here. Let's hear then God's word to us, his breathed out word. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall teach, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. As far as the reading of God's word. 
Let's again pray and ask for God's blessing. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you that we are able to attend your house of worship. We ask that you will be with Pastor Bob as he speaks on this word. And forgive us of all our many sins, as we ask in your name alone. Amen. Amen. So the thrust of, or the central point of, of where we are at is verse 6. That Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. The covenant he mediates is better. So the question is, why is the covenant that Christ mediates better than the covenant that Moses mediated? Now, let me give a preface before I, I give you the three main points tonight and then get into that message. And the preface is this. We are not talking about the replacement of the covenant of grace. God made a covenant with Abraham. We refer to that covenant as the covenant of grace. That covenant of grace is not being replaced. That's not what the author is talking about. The author is not coming and saying, we have a new covenant now in Christ. We got rid of the covenant with Abraham. No. What the author is speaking of here is the fact that God established the covenant of grace with Abraham. And then God came and out of that covenant of grace established a secondary covenant, we might say, with the people of Israel at Sinai. There is no doubt that Sinai is in view here. We're not, there's no mention of Abraham. There's no talk of Abraham. But there is mention of Sinai. There is mention of erecting the tabernacle and all that sort of stuff. There is mention of the fact that God led them out of Egypt and made a covenant with them. So the covenant of grace that God makes with Abraham is displayed for us, is shown to us at Mount Sinai through the law. Now, a better covenant has come. Not a better covenant than the covenant of grace, but a better covenant than the covenant that was established at Mount Sinai. Why is this one, the one, this new covenant that is being spoken of here, why is this new covenant that doesn't replace the covenant of grace, but replaces the covenant at Sinai. Why is that better? Three reasons are given to us in this passage. One is because it has a better mediator. Or we could say it has a better high priest. Secondly, it is better because of the promises that are made. Thirdly, it is better because of its continuation. So this new covenant, which is part of the covenant of grace, that comes to us as a replacement of the covenant that it was made on Mount Sinai, is better 
first of all, because it has a better mediator, or we would say better high priest. What does the author provide for the grounds of that? Based upon what? How do, how do we know that Christ is better? One, because of his qualifications. Christ is vastly more qualified than any human priest who has gone before, including Aaron. He's a better mediator even than Moses was for the people of Israel. Notice how the passage begins. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. What kind of high priest is that? Well, you got to go back into chapter 7 where we concluded the last time we were in Hebrews. Right? Go back to verse 25. Consequently, this new priest, Christ, right, has this priesthood that is permanently because he continues forever. Pick it up with me at verse 25, Hebrews 7. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. What kind of high priest? One who is holy, one who is innocent, one who is unstained, one who is separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Now, when the author says in verse 8, we have this kind of high priest. Who is it? Jesus Christ. Christ's qualifications. He lives forever. He is holy. He is blameless. He is innocent. He is unstained. He is separated from sinners. He is exalted above the heavens. He is the supreme high priest. He is the highest of high priests. Why is the covenant better? Because that old covenant of Moses had these human priests walking around doing human things including sin, and they're the ones who are seeking to be the mediators of this covenant, offering sacrifices over and over and over again. Now we have Christ. His qualifications are so much superior. That makes the covenant better because the priest is better. But the second thing he tells us is because of the location of where our high priest serves. Verse 1. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. It's not only lo- the, the qualifications of Jesus. It's the location of Jesus. Where does Jesus serve as high priest? He serves sitting at the right hand of the majesty, at the right hand of God. That which we confessed a few moments ago out of the Nicene Creed. Right? That reminder. But let's remind ourselves of the importance of that picture that he is sitting. Why, why is the author emphasizing that? Because in those days... When a king sat, he did so to receive his subjects. 
He didn't stand for them to come. He sat. Because that indicates he is superior. Do you know what you read when you read the Old Testament about the work of the priest? And he shall stand, and he shall stand, and he shall stand, and he shall stand, and he shall stand and do this, and he shall stand and do that, and he shall stand and do this. What do we read of Christ? He's sitting. Because the work is complete. Why is the covenant better? Because of the location. But it's not only the king who sat to receive subjects. The court sat in judgment. Right? We even do that today. Right? You, you, you go watch a court drama. The judge comes walking in. What does everybody have to do? All rise for the honorable judge so-and-so. What does he do? He sits before you can. If you sit before he does, you can be in contempt of court. It's a sign of dishonor. It's a sign of disrespect. You let the judge sit. The elders, what did they normally do? They sat at the city gate to do the business of the day. What did the teachers of that day do? They sat to teach. It was a sign of authority. It was a sign of presence. Where does our high priest serve? Well, he's not standing. He's sitting. He has the authority. He has the work completed. But, listen to what else we're told. He ministers in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. And then he goes on to talk about the author does. Look. Christ serves in the true tabernacle. He doesn't serve in a copy. He doesn't serve in a shadow. He doesn't serve in the place of the sign. The book of Exodus describes for us the tabernacle that man set up. That man constructed. Man made the articles. Man made the cloth. Man made the furniture. Man set it up. Christ serves as the high priest in the true tabernacle in glory. Not that which man makes, that which God has made. It's interesting how often Moses is told, construct the tabernacle like you saw the pattern of in heaven on the mount. Moses saw something. He saw something in glory. And God is telling him, make a copy of that down there on earth. But Jesus serves not in the copy, not in the shadow, but in the reality of that which God himself has made in glory. Why is it the true one? Because God's presence is continual. Remember that old one back there in Exodus? How did it work? Cloud of glory comes in. The cloud of glory is the sign of God's presence. It comes in, dwells between the cherubim. Does it always stay there? No. Nope. Sometimes the cloud lifts and moves. 
We even read that when, when the people fall into sin, that the glory of God left the temple. But Jesus serves as the priest in the true tabernacle where the presence of God always is. He is never out. Of the presence of God. That human priest was in and out, in and out, in and out, right? One day a year he gets to go into the presence of God. But Jesus is continually in that presence of the majesty. Permanent. That, that tabernacle is a permanent tabernacle. That other tabernacle, what did they do? Oh, cloud's moving. Pack it all up. Okay, pack it all up. Levites, Kohathites, Gergeshites, everybody get your job, get your cart, pack the thing up, off we go. We'll trudge another 10 miles through the desert. Okay, we're stopping. What do you do? Set the thing up again. Take it up, put it up, take it down. Put it up, take it down. The tabernacle in glory is permanent. It's not taken up or taken down. It exists always. And thirdly, as the author points out, right, about the sacrifices, they got to keep offering them. He made one sacrifice. It's done. Why is that tabernacle superior? Because it doesn't require daily, daily sacrifices morning and night. Morning and night. Morning and night. Morning and night. One sacrifice. And because the mediator is superior... And because of where the mediator, the priest, is located, that makes the covenant of which he is the guarantee better. But then the author tells us, but there is another reason. Verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. The promises of this new covenant, of which Christ is the mediator, of which Christ is the priest, is better than the old. Why, what was wrong with the old? Why is it better? Because in the old covenant, Men sinned. It wasn't a problem with God. It wasn't even a problem with the covenant. It was the problem that man could not keep the law. The weakness was in man, not in God and not in the covenant. Because it's God who established the covenant. Was the covenant bad? No. The covenant was good. Was God bad because he made the covenant? No, God is holy and just. God is good. What was the problem? Men sinned. Men could not keep that law of God. And it required perfect obedience. It required sinlessness. 
And they couldn't do it. Sacrifice in the morning. They couldn't do it. Sacrifice at night. They couldn't do it. Sacrifice in the morning. They couldn't do it. Sacrifice at night. Over and over and over and over and over and over again. That old covenant that was established there on Sinai. With its sacrifices, with its laws, with its principles. With its ceremonial cleansings and washings. They could not keep. With its Sabbath observances, they could not keep. With its feasts and festivals, they could not keep. And there was no complete sacrifice. You can never find a pure enough, a complete enough, a whole enough sacrifice that it would fully take away the sins of the people. What do we read here in Hebrews chapter 8? How does the author put this once again? He says, If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers. For they, end of verse 9, did not continue in my covenant. Because of their disobedience, because of their inability to perfectly keep that covenant, God in his mercy, provides a new covenant. What are the promises of the new covenant? What promises come to us there? Let me highlight three of them for you. Verse 10. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So by, in, in Jeremiah, he's telling us, here's an old covenant, the one at Sinai. I'm replacing that with a new covenant. And the new covenant comes with better promises. Well, what was the promise of the old covenant? The old covenant promise was this. Obey me fully and completely and I will bless you. Disobedience and I will curse you. The end of the book of Deuteronomy. Well, what are the promises of the new covenant? Verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. What beautifully chosen language. Where was that old covenant written? Think back, Sinai. Where was the old covenant written? I'll ask you this. What was it written on? Stone. Right? It was written on stone. It was written on the two tablets of the law. Right? God wrote the old covenant on stone. Probably to remind us of the hardness of the human heart. 
Where's God going to write the new law? This new covenant. Does it take place outside? Exterior? Or is it internal? Well, the text tells us, right? I'll write it on their hearts. I'll make it their passion for living. I'll write my law on the core of their being. Not some external thing that's held over their head. But that which works within their heart so that they desire, they want to do my will. I'm going to make a new covenant. And in that new covenant, I'm going to write it on their hearts. Secondly, the promise is this. They're going to know the Lord. They're going to know me. Verse 11, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. That, that beautiful word, right, that comes back now out of the Old Testament. And obviously he would use this word because he's writing to these Hebrew Christians. To know the Lord means to have an intimate relationship with him. Here again is a reminder to us of why this is not replacing the covenant of grace. Because what was Abraham, who is under the covenant of grace, called the friend of God? The one who has an intimate relationship with God. That's what happens in the covenant of grace. But you see, the law at Sinai, because of the people's disobedience, did not bring them closer to God. It drove them farther away from God. Because of their sin, because of their disobedience. In this new covenant, the promise is this. You're going to know me. You're going to have a relationship with me. A relationship that is a friendship. With me. Now, the sidebar to this is this, right? The sidebar to all of this is this. If the covenant of grace has not been replaced, if we're not replacing the covenant of grace, then all that stood at the covenant of grace still stands now. The means to get there perhaps has changed. But the covenant has not changed, i.e., it's the reason we baptize children. Because the covenant of grace hasn't been replaced. God hasn't changed anything about that covenant. What is happening is God is providing a different means by which we may come to Him and have a relationship with Him, an intimate, knowledgeable relationship with him and in that relationship there is provided a forgiveness of all of our sin verse 12 
For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. How did that other covenant end? Right? For they did not, end of verse 9, they did not continue in my covenant and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. But what about in this new covenant? Holy Spirit writes God's law upon our hearts so that we have a desire, not a compulsion. Not because we're ordered to, but because we desire to serve Him. We have an intimate relationship with God. And we experience the fact that our sins are forgiven. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. That's because we have a better high priest. Jesus Christ. And that's because Jesus Christ serving as that high priest is in a much better place. And the promises of this covenant are so much more beautiful. It is as if the author is looking at these Hebrew Christians who are eyeing Jerusalem and the temple and thinking maybe we should go back. Saying, why would you ever go back to a shadow? Why would you ever go back to a covenant? under which you can only stand condemned. Under which the best you can have is a human priest who serves in a human location. Why would you ever go back when this is what is before you? This is what you possess as a believer in Jesus Christ. The Spirit's work upon your heart an intimate, close fellowship with God. And this thought just occurred to me, okay? Sometimes that's the way God works these things. Isn't that what you really want right now? A friend? With all that's going on in our world... Isn't that what we desire the most? A friend. A close friend. An intimate friend. The friend of supreme power and might. A friend who knows the future. A friend who holds you in the hollow of his hand. That's something that was available to those people under that Sinai covenant only through perfect obedience. Moses isn't even done writing and they're down there worshiping a golden calf. But God comes to us through Christ's priesthood. says we're going to be friends. It's like Abraham. It's the friend of God. So will you be. 
And I'm not even going to remember. I won't even remember any of your sins. Thank God, amen. Hmm? Never going to remember any one of my sins. But there is a third reason that the author places before us as to why this covenant is better. And first of all, before I give this, because it's, it's pretty short, notice it's the word better. It's not that the other one was bad. This is just better. This is the superior way. And of course, we know that God in his sovereignty had this all planned anyway. He gives this first means of covenant at Sinai so that we recognize how much we need Christ. How much we need Him as our priest. But notice with me, finally, verse 13. In speaking of the new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Why is this a better covenant? Because this new covenant continues. What's happening to the old one as the author writes? As the author writes, the old one has already been declared obsolete, but is growing and fading away. Now what's he referring to? What he's referring to is this. This book is written before 70 A.D. What's going to happen in 70 A.D.? Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, and so is the temple. And so is the altar of burnt offering. So is any means that the old covenant was going to give as a means of atonement. God took it away. My friends, don't think for one minute God's going to rebuild it. Why would God rebuild a silly copy when the reality is there in glory? We don't need another copy. We don't need another temple on, in Jerusalem. We don't need another altar. We already have the perfect priest and the perfect tabernacle in glory. It's there waiting for us to draw near to God. It's becoming, it's fading away. As this book is written, oh, it still stands, it's still there. When this book is written, when Hebrews is penned, it's still there. But he's saying to them, why are you going to go back? Why would you go back to Jerusalem? That thing, that temple's fading away. That priesthood's going to come to an end. Those sacrifices aren't going to be anymore. You're leaving Christ to go back to that and there's nothing going to be there in a few years? God's already declared it obsolete. It was declared obsolete by the death and resurrection and the ascension of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The old, that old covenant of Sinai is obsolete. And you and I can look back upon it and say it certainly is. God made sure. God made sure. He wiped it completely off the map. See, sometimes we wonder about what God does and the destruction that comes upon our world. Well, sometimes God's got a better plan than what we think it ought to be. Here, God's better plan was, I'm going to level Jerusalem and I'm going to level the temple. 
I will make it impossible for them to offer sacrifices anymore because they don't need it. Because Christ is that sacrifice. You see, that covenant, that new covenant is eternal. One verse, chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance. It's an eternal covenant. That one at Sinai was always meant to be temporary until Christ came and offered himself far better than the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer. Far better. Far superior. A far better covenant. In Christ. That is what you and I are a part of. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you. What a blessing these words are to us tonight. What a comfort, what a hope, what an assurance, what a peace. And oh, Father, the benefits, the benefits that are ours in and through this finished, completed work of our high priest, Jesus Christ. In his name, God's people say, Amen.